From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 77, Whidbey Island's Failed Socialist Utopia. The Socialist Brotherhood of the Cooperative Commonwealth, BCC, which was founded in St. Louis in July of 1896, had the view that if socialism could be proven to work in one state, then it would work in the rest of the nation. The progressive movement had established early roots in the evergreen state, organized labor was becoming more activist, and fertile land was both plentiful and affordable, making it an ideal location for the first attempt at such a venture. To put theory into reality, Skagit County's Equality Colony was founded in September of 1897. On the 18th of June, 1898, the BCC periodical Industrial Freedom, which was published in Equality, issued the following invitation. The Brotherhood of Cooperative Commonwealth has room for all manner of socialistic organizations which accept its central idea, that of carrying the state of Washington for socialism in 1901. It didn't take long for many people at Equality who belonged to all manner of socialistic organizations to start having disagreements with one another on a variety of wide-ranging topics. Although the issues were both theoretical and emotional, turf wars between national and local BCC leaders rapidly spread to the rank and file. According to one chronicle, each man trusted his neighbor to do his best honestly and equitably, and it just didn't work. By the end of 1903, just 38 people were still hanging in there, and by 1907, feuds, freeloading, a disastrous fire started by an unknown arsonist, and lawsuits caused its final collapse. Other socialist colonies in the Evergreen State at the time included Burley Colony in Kitsap County, which lasted from 1898 until 1913, the Anarchist Home Colony in Pierce County, which lasted from 1894 until 1921, and the Whidbey Island Freeland Colony, which was founded right at the start of the 20th century. It's confusing that one side at Equality Colony chose the name Freeland Colony in 1904, nearly four years after the Freeland Company on Whidbey Island, a completely different organization. The Freeland Colony on Whidbey Island was the result of an odd union between a wealthy businessman from Seattle and a socialist utopian with a beard and a biblical appearance. Exactly where, when, or how they met is unknown, but what is known is that their lives prior to that point could not have been any more different. James Patrick Gleason graduated with a law degree from Albert College in Dublin, Ireland in 1882, emigrated to the United States soon after, and moved to Seattle in 1888 to start a career in real estate and finance. Gleason was establishment to his core, a devout Catholic who served as collector of internal revenue for the Washington District from 1894 until 1898. He also worked for the Fidelity Trust Company, a Seattle investment firm that in the late 1890s was spiraling into bankruptcy. Shortly before the turn of the century, Gleason's path crossed that of George Washington Daniels. Daniels was born in the state of New York, but nothing is known about his early life or his schooling, which was presumably not very extensive. He was residing on Indian land in Wisconsin in 1850 when he wed Julia A. Connor there in 1859. 
During the Civil War, Daniels fought for the Union, and a brother of his perished in a Confederate prison. Ten children were born to Daniels and Julia between 1865 and 1879. The next year, the couple, who were then residing in Tennessee, lost their newborn boy, and shortly after, Julia passed away after a bout with tuberculosis. Daniels married Nancy J. Linfoot Prouty, a widow with eight of her own children, four years later while they were both residing in Polk City, Iowa. Just imagine the Brady Bunch, but with 20 children. They migrated west by wagon in 1884, tending to the mixed family's ten younger children while also tending a herd of cattle. They eventually settled down and established a prosperous dairy business in southeast Montana. By 1890, Daniels, who was then close to 60 years old, sold the dairy business and relocated to the utopian socialist Tapalabampu colony in Sinaloa, Mexico, with his wife and some of their surviving children. One of his boys died of typhoid at the age of 17 and another drowned at the age of 21, both of these tragic losses occurring within a year of each other. The Topolobampo colony quickly failed because of malaria-carrying mosquitoes and unstable water supply and factional conflicts. What was left of the Daniels family by 1895 was reportedly constructing a magnificent mansion close to Tempe in the Arizona Territory. Daniels' experience in Mexico did not change his opinion of socialism. Instead, he joined the BCC and contributed money to a quality colony. From Arizona, he wrote a letter that was published in Industrial Freedom on the 15th of October, 1898, promising to give $5 for every 500 raised by others to buy a steamboat for the colony. After leaving Arizona in 1899, Daniels was next seen in Pierce County, close to Artendale, where it's possible that he was considering moving to one of the nearby home or Burley colonies. It is unknown if he actually resided at Equality. If he did, it was only for the briefest periods of time. By the end of 1899, Daniels had already begun planning the project that would eventually become Freeland. Events and connections at this stage become more hazy. The Freeland Association was founded by Daniels in late 1899 with the assistance of Henry L. Stevens and Henry A. White. On the 12th of January 1900, the Freeland Association was officially established in Island County. Stevens traveled from the Burley Colony, where he had run the Hotel Commonwealth for nearly a year with his wife, three kids, and a few other family members. White's ancestry is unknown. Holmes Harbor, a five-and-a-half-mile-long bay on the eastern side of Whidbey Island, was the location of land purchases made by James Gleason, either in his individual capacity or working on behalf of Fidelity Trust. It is unknown how Daniels and Gleason connected. Whether they were partners or simply engaged in arm's-length real estate transactions is a question that has little relevance today, but there is some evidence that Gleason regarded the Freeland Association with something more than merely commercial interest. Some sources claim that Gleason sponsored the Freeland Company and that Daniels was his agent. Despite being seasoned socialists, Daniels, Stevens, and White wished to avoid the factional conflicts and other issues that had destroyed previous attempts to construct socialist utopias. The Rochdale Society, a consumer cooperative established in 1844 by struggling craftsmen close to Manchester, England, served as a model for the Freeland Association. The Rochdale Society is credited with founding the global cooperative movement and with giving rise to a set of principles known as the Rochdale Principles, which continues to serve as the foundation for many cooperatives to this day. The Freeland Association's bylaws were remarkably ordinary and free of any socialist jargon. 
the objects and purposes of the corporation included, among other things, to buy, sell, own, lease, mortgage, all kinds of property, to develop a town site, to own, manage, and operate sawmills, shingle mills, and other timber manufacturing plants, railways, toll roads, tramways, steamers, barges, boats, docks, wharves, depots, sheds, storehouses, and bridges. The association's founders' main objective was to give its members the ability to own the land on which they lived and to participate in the management and earnings of several cooperative businesses. Henry Smith, a co-founder of the association, wrote in 1902 to describe how Freeland was different from other socialist colonies. A great many people object to colony living because almost all these associations are upon the communistic plan of living, and a great many object to them because the individual home is so nearly eliminated. But Freeland is a noticeable exception to this objection. Here the home is the central thought. Everyone is at liberty to make his home as veritably every man's castle as in the days of feudalism. Here everyone is given full swing, untrammeled by the drones upon which objectors to cooperative society so much delight to expostulate. Anyone was able to join the Freeland Association by making a $10 initial contribution to purchase up to 10, but no more, shares of stock with a $10 par value. If more than one share was purchased, the remaining amount might be covered out of the member's share of the cooperative firm's profits. No matter how many shares a member had, they each had one vote. The interest rate on all paid-up stock was to be 8%, which was a feature that more orthodox socialists viewed as being purely capitalistic. Association members had the option of purchasing 5-acre parcels of land for a 20% cash down payment with the remaining amount to be paid through shares of the profits from a jointly held shop and other planned businesses. This was thought to be sufficiently close to free land to support the colony's name. A member would continue to earn a portion of the revenues from the cooperative enterprises after their stock and land were paid off, with 5% going to the association. A Freeland Association stock ledger for the years 1901 to 1903 shows that roughly 59 people had purchased shares, albeit it is hardly a model of clarity. They were almost all men, and many, if not the majority, had families. Later bylaw revisions added a $30 payment for an interest in a sawmill and other planned projects, and they divided the remaining 5% between a store fund and a machinery fund. With the exception of the cooperative store and occasionally a ship, none of the association's economic aspirations would be realized after the latter alteration led some early members to leave the organization. Less than a year after the Freeland Association was established, on the 29th of December 1900, Daniels submitted a plat map to the Island County Auditor for the town of Freeland, which would be located in the middle of Holmes Harbor's southern coast. The plat had 15 blocks of 5 acres each in the uplands, one block of 5.5 acres, and three nearby blocks along the shore that were each divided into six lots. Four streets were included and made public. Woodard, Freeland, and Myrtle Avenues ran inland from Bayview Avenue, later renamed Shoreview Drive, which generally ran east to west along the southern edge of the bay. The westernmost street, Woodard Avenue, was given that name in honor of Alvin Woodard, a member of the association and the captain of the sailing schooner Bessie B., which was initially Freeland's only means of communication with the mainland and the most effective way to travel to other shoreside island communities. A county road, twisting and indirect, did not link Langley, Freeland, Coopville, and Oak Harbor until 1926. The Platte also established a park for an oddly curved bluff that protruded into the bay. 
Daniels claimed to be the owner and fee simple of the property in the Platt application, not Gleason, Fidelity Trust, or the Freeland Association. This was just not true, though. William B. Lysicki, a survivor of the bankrupt equality colony who eventually became a longtime and engaged resident of the Freeland neighborhood, bought one upland block and an adjacent shoreside block of the 1900 plat more than two years later in February of 1902. James D. Gleason and Nell D. Gleason were the grantors on the warranty deed, with Daniel signing just as a witness. Despite the fact that it is impossible to recover all of the intricacies of their relationship, this provides strong evidence in favor of the claims made by sources that Daniels was Gleason's agent. On the 5th of October, 1902, eight months after Lysicky's purchase, Gleason and his wife gave the piece of the plat that Daniels had designated as a park to the public, demonstrating their charitable affection for the Freeland settlers. Other immigrants were attracted to the area by its pristine beauty and wealth of resources. The Freeland Association controlled only a small portion of the land surrounding Holmes Harbor. Many of the others were self-described capitalists who were also self-described pioneers of individualism, determined to control their own destiny and having little interest in socialism, cooperative movements, or the like. There were those who came before the Freeland colony, but one of the most active and aspirational capitalist families was the Spencer family who came afterward. Hugh, Piercy, Arthur, and Minnie Spencer were the four children that Hudson Hewlett Spencer and his wife Sarah Alice Adams Spencer had when they eloped in 1877. After spending a number of years in Michigan, the couple moved to Washington and homesteaded in the isolated Clallam County. In 1900, the family relocated to Everett, where they ran a five-and-dime business, with their two youngest children, Arthur and Minnie, and daughter-in-law, Carrie, whose husband, Hugh, was a tugboat captain and sometimes absent, Hudson and Sarah relocated to Freeland in 1904. Minnie Spencer and Freeman Plum honeymooned in a tent on neighboring Dogfish Bay, now known as Honeymoon Bay, after their 1909 wedding. Just outside the western limit of Daniel's initial plat, on the southwest edge of Holmes Harbor, the Spencers purchased a good amount of acreage. Near the base of the bluff to the east, Hudson and Sarah opened the Harbor Cash Store, which was in direct competition with the Freeland Cooperative Store, officially known as the Freeland Association Mercantile Department. They built a two-story house next to the Harbor Cash Store, with the ground floor being reserved for dances and neighborhood gatherings. Later, the store was relocated onto pilings, and the house was remodeled into a sizable home that over time housed different Spencer family members. Some of Hudson and Sarah Spencer's descendants were still present on Whidbey Island more than a century after they landed in Freeland. The Spencer family expanded into additional businesses constructing a dock, a logging operation, a sawmill, and a factory that exported peeled logs to Mexico. The Rover, a 55-foot motorboat owned and operated by Arthur Spencer, started making regular trips between Whidbey, Camano Island, and Everett in 1916. Additionally, he constructed a machine shop and living quarters next to the Spencer store on pilings until transferring it to dry land across the road in 1939. Frank Nichols purchased it in 1964, moved there with his family, and started Nichols Brothers Boat Builders, which grew to be Island County's largest non-government employer. The green facade of Arthur Spencer's machine shop was saved and still stands today, now carrying the name of the Nichols brothers. Daniels and his allies' choice to structure Freeland more like a Rochdale cooperative than strictly following socialist principles was not altogether in vain. 
Compared to other utopian projects that were shattered from within by factionalism and freeloading, the Freeland Association lasted for a far longer time and with far less drama and strife. Even though its organization wasn't typically socialist, the majority of its members were and stayed socialists despite the failure of its cooperative economic initiatives. The Socialist Party of America was curated in 1901 and a local chapter was started in Freeland in May of that same year. Eight of the 11 party candidates for county seats at the Island County Socialist Convention that year held in Freeland were also members of the Freeland Association. Seven of the 12 socialist candidates running two years later were from Freeland. Members of the association would continue to actively engage in electoral politics far into the second decade of the 20th century. The socialists knew, according to Coopville's Island County Times, full well that the ticket placed in the field would go down to defeat, are laboring for the maintenance of the principles of their party. But as the capitalists arrived, tensions increased steadily. The two sides were unable to get past their mutual resentment and mistrust, and Freeland split into two communities with hardly any communication between them. To their credit, despite being neighbors, their tense relationship never turned violent. However, there were many unanswered questions, and spying and petty behavior were both frequent. Even though the Spencer family rose to prominence, they were only one of many capitalist families that lived in close proximity to their socialist neighbors. Many of the Freeland Association's members, who worked in adjacent logging camps and in mills, farms, or in construction, prospered. However, the association had already shown itself unable to live up to its most fundamental goals before it faced competition from newcomers. The Whidbey Islander, the Colony's Journal, acknowledged in 1902 that the association's primary goal of giving its members practically free land had to be abandoned because of disappointments in real estate concerns. As in other regions, this meant that new settlers coming in will simply have to buy land. Freeland is just a colony of socialists cooperating on semi-capitalistic ideas, according to the editors of that same edition. Only the mercantile department of the association was successfully founded out of all the planned businesses, and even that was dogged by misfortune. The majority of the Freeland co-op's inventory came from a failing cooperative wholesale business in Seattle over a short period of time, and soon after, the Freeland operation also folded. Henry and Rose Blair brought it back to life somewhere about 1908, and they managed it as a cooperative up until 1917, when two other association members briefly took it over. The experiment was finally put to a stop when the Freeland Association declared bankruptcy in 1920. Unsurprisingly, the women of the town were responsible for one remarkable exception to the conflict between the socialists and the capitalists. In 1902, Alma Gearhart, who was a partner in the Freeland Association, established a group for the female residents of Freeland. She called it the First Thursday Club because that was the day it would meet each month. The group's initial membership of nine women was predominantly, and possibly fully, socialist because there weren't many capitalist families there yet. By 1904, there were 14 members, and by 1909, a few capitalist women, including Sarah Spencer, the matriarch of the Spencer family, and her daughter-in-law, Ethel, had joined. If not the sole, then certainly the most effective attempt to set aside political differences and cooperate across the gap that had estranged neighbor from neighbor appears to have been this. Do Your Own Thinking was the club's slogan, and the uplift of women and the welfare of society was its proclaimed goal. 
Poetry readings and book reviews made up a large portion of the monthly schedule, but important current problems were also discussed and debated. The harm of wearing long skirts, managing a husband, medicine, and the art of healing noted the women belonging to this club. What should be the attitude of sincere women toward their fallen sisters and property rights of women in the state of Washington? Freeland Hall is yet another endearing accomplishment of the Freeland Association. Gleason and his wife gave the public the parkland in 1902, and William Lysicky was given charge of the transaction. The first Thursday Club women paid $25 as part of an effort in 1914 to build a community-owned hall on the site in exchange for a room being set aside for their usage. Freeland Hall, which was opened in 1915 and is still in use today, was constructed entirely with donated money, supplies, and labor. Up until the 1960s, when it joined with another organization to form the Holmes Harbor Activities Club, the first Thursday Club routinely convened there. Emotions undoubtedly subsided as time went on, and it is probable, though not widely documented, that socialists and capitalists worked together in other ways as well, such as advocating for a school and a post office, which they lacked until 1914. Together, they later opposed efforts by mainlanders with second homes to restrict access to Holmes Harbor's shoreline. As more roads were built, most of Freeland's business activity shifted to Harbor Center, which is located a half-mile southeast of the original Daniels plot. The area was given the name Freeland and became South Whidbey's key business and retail hub when the post office moved there from the old Spencer store in 1954. It is situated right off of State Route 525, the main north-south thoroughfare. The most fascinating times in the history of older American settlements are frequently those when men and women tried to make a living out of the wilderness. This is especially true of Freeland because of both its idealistic beginnings and the reality that not much of historical significance occurred there for most of the 20th century. Freeland, like hundreds of other small towns in the Evergreen State, expanded quite slowly, acquiring only 18 new residents yearly on average between 1900 and 2010 with the majority of the increase occurring between 1990 and 2010. The community's attempt to become incorporated in 2006 was unsuccessful, and as of 2019, Freeland continued to rely on Island County for all of its essential services, including police protection. The exact boundaries of Freeland have always been somewhat debatable. Freeland is a CDP census-designated place, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, which counted 2,045 persons there in 2010. Freeland's boundaries as a non-municipal urban growth area in accordance with the state's Growth Management Act in that year had a smaller area than the CDP and only had 1,627 residents. Both counts had a predominantly white population that was much older than the state median of 37.3, with a median age of about 52. The Freeland Non-Municipal Urban Growth Area was further reduced in size by Island County Commissioners in 2016. After selling his dairy business in 1890, George Washington Daniels was probably a reasonably rich man. He consistently identified himself as a farmer in past censuses. During the 1890 census, he was living in Mexico. In the 1910 census, he listed his occupation as owned income. In 1911, Daniels and his wife moved from Freeland to Snohomish County, where he resided until his death on the 11th of October, 1921. His remains were returned to Whidbey Island and were interred at Bayview Cemetery, where there is proof that by the time of his passing, he had given up everything in his pursuit of utopia. 
The tomb of Daniels and his wife, who passed away six years prior, is marked by a little cement slab that is obviously homemade and is rough, broken, and poorly cast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Doing so really helps the show to grow and to expand to a new audience, so any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include the South Whidbey and Island County Historical Society's Utopias on Puget Sound 1885-1915 by Charles Pierce Warren, the Pacific Northwest Quarterly, Freeland by John Caldbeck at HistoryLink.org, Ancestry.com, the Success of American Communes in Volume 67 of the Southern Economic Journal, the Seattle Times, the Washington State Secretary of State's website, and Volumes 1 and 2 of South Whidbey and its people. Thank you for listening to Episode 77, Whidbey Island's Failed Socialist Utopia. Episode 78 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets, and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing Stilliguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck. And Moclips and Copalis. Where the razor clams abound A little bit of heaven Is a shack on Puget Sound A little bit of heaven Is a shack on Puget Sound